Welcome to the Bloomberg Surveillance Podcast. I'm Tom Keen, along with Jonathan Farrell and Lisa Abramowitz. Daily, we bring you insight from the best in economics, finance, investment, and international relations. Find Bloomberg Surveillance on Apple Podcasts, SoundCloud, Bloomberg.com, and of course, on the Bloomberg Terminal. Joining us now, a man who needs no introduction. I'm really pleased to say that with us is Mohammed Al-Aryan. Mohammed, let's start there. Team Transitory, how much of a challenge are they getting from the recent incoming data? Massive, John, and thank you for having me. A massive challenge. I think anybody who looks at what's going on will tell you that unless you embrace the analytically meaningless phrase of persistently transitory, which I've heard, persistently transitory. This inflation round is not transitory. We should take it seriously. And central banks should move quickly to contain what could be something that ends up being more than just an inflation problem, but a growth problem. Mohammed, how small is that window to act to make that change? It's there, John, but it's getting smaller. You've heard me say this for the last five months. Um, The longer you wait, the harder it is to deliver a orderly um, adjustment. I think this notion that Andy Haldane introduced last July of a handbrake U-turn, what you want to avoid central banks doing, this handbrake U-turn, is a risk that we should factor in and indeed is being factored in away from the from the Fed right now. Mohammed, one of the more interesting aspects of the price action, we talk about the lift in markets following people bringing forward their expectations for rate hikes for the end of uh, asset purchases in the middle of next year. Now we are pricing in potentially two rate hikes by the end of next year. Is this basically a market endorsement of a more hawkish Fed than has previously been communicated? Yes, I mean, the market is telling the Fed two things. One is get going with tapering, we can take it. And two is you're not going to be able to separate cleanly tapering from rate hikes. And again, look at the numbers today. Look at PPI in China. This is a very hot inflation environment. And the longer the central banks wait, the greater the risk. And the market realizes this, and it's starting slowly in the fixed income space to price that in. Mohammed, what, what would you say to people who argue that there is a self-correcting mechanism here, that higher prices will slow growth, will slow demand, and that you'll actually right-size without the Fed interfering and curtailing growth that needs to hit some sort of acceleration pace so we can get out of the hole? I will tell them that in theory, you're right. In practice, we haven't seen it work too well. Um, it's a very finely balanced because this is about demand destruction. That argument is about demand destruction. And when you destroy demand, there's a lot of collateral damage and unintended consequences. So in theory, in a textbook, it works fine. In practice, we often overshoot and end up in a recession. So this is not something that I would like to try as someone who cares about the well-being of Americans and especially those who are lower income Mm -hmm. because they get hurt the most in, in that sort of world. Uh, Mohammed, you joined the International Monetary Fund in 1983. This was back, folks, when the New York Jets were actually good. And you spent a good 15 years there, Dr. El Arian. You saw all of the revolution and the different crises, but none like the oddity now. How important is it for the IMF to distance across 19th Street Northwest? Does the IMF need to in dialogue, break away from the World Bank in the coming weeks and years? 
No, on the contrary. Um, you need really good IMF World Bank collaboration going forward. We have a structural issue. The developing countries are particularly vulnerable, and the two institutions working together can have a huge impact. What the IMF has to make clear and has been making clear is that the data integrity issues aren't about the IMF. No one has raised questions about the IMF's data integrity. This is an issue that relates to doing business report at the World Bank, and the IMF data integrity is as high as it can be. Right. Within this crisis, is, are we at the point where marginally we finally give way voting and governance power from the European nations of Bretton Woods over to selected emerging markets, particularly in Asia? So, so we have had this governance issues repeatedly. Tom, you and I have been talking about it for decades. Um, the governance and representation of the IMF, while it has evolved, still represents the world of yesterday and not the world of today and tomorrow. And what we're seeing is little pipes being built around the, the IMF and the World Bank because other institutions are deemed to be more representative. So, so that is an urgent issue. And Europe has to take the lead on this issue. Mohammed, we talked about this great divergence this week because of the IMF. Let's talk about that a little bit more from a central bank perspective. We have had interest rate hikes from Chile, a big one in the last 24 hours, I think 125 basis points. Colombia, Mexico, Brazil, South Korea. Mohammed, do you think something big is building here for emerging markets that could spread to DM from EM? It's funny you should say that because I, I'm drafting my next FT op-ed and it will be on that. I think that there's a risk for developing countries that they have the perfect storm. And that means massive cost push inflation imported, especially for commodity importers, lower global growth as China and as the US slow. And then on top of that, the risk of reversal in financial flows. And that's why you're seeing the central banks tighten way before the Fed tightens. So that risk is there and it's meaningful because I go back, not just to your word dispersion, John, but to what Gita Gobernus, the head of research, called dangerous dispersion. You do not want to enter a world in which the low-income countries risk being knocked off the convergence process. So yes, there is that risk, and it's something that we should be keeping an eye on. And it's one of the unfortunately underdeveloped themes so far at the fund. I think that the IMF did a great service by introducing this notion of dangerous dispersion, and we should pursue it further. So, Mohammed, let's pursue it further a little bit more right now. If there's one thing you'd be focused on, the spillover risk, you know how this works. Often DM doesn't care until it affects DM. What's the one big thing you're focused on right now? So I'm focused on how capital is responding because the good thing for markets, and you're seeing it again today, is that the behavioral conditioning of the marketplace has been to buy the dip. It has been incredibly successful strategy. And we still see residual buying the dip inclination. And the one thing I'm really focusing on is can we understand the behavioral conditioning of the marketplace and how that's going to evolve? We know the economy. I don't think anybody can doubt that we have an inflation issue, that the Fed in particular is late to this issue, and that we risk a, a disorderly tightening of policy. I think m most people see that as a risk. What we haven't yet understood fully is how the conditioning of markets, the behavioral conditions of market can change. Mohammed, 
If the Federal Reserve does, in fact, hike twice come next year, what does that do to emerging markets? How much more pressure does this put on them, given how much they've already had to hike rates to compete? It depends which one, Lisa, and that's where we're going to see massive differentiation. Some countries have the financial resilience to cope with it and have the policy flexibilities. Others don't. And that's, that's a very important message for emerging market investors. So far, they have benefited enormously from simply riding the liquidity wave. We've entered a phase right now where you need a lot more granular analyses, and you need to be the old type emerging market investor, understanding that ultimately you do get contagion and you've got to be able to dif differentiate between those who recover quickly and those who constitute non-recoverable mistakes. Mohammed, we miss you. We miss you. We want you back in America. I understand there might be a free seat at the Federal Reserve soon, so maybe we can work something out. I'm joking. You don't want to go there. <laughs> I know. What, what Tom said about Marmite. I'm in the UK and I love my Marmite. Do you I really? I do. I love Marmite. It is an acquired taste. You're not. Thank you very much for being with us. Mohamed Alarian, thank you very much. John, I understand you understand how sensitive and woke Adam Posen is. Uh, we'll so find out how woke Adam Posen is in just a moment. Larry Summers, the former Treasury Secretary, <clears throat> Lawrence Summers, saying in the last 24 hours the following, Adam, help us out with this one. I'd love your reaction. Quote, we have a generation of central bankers who are defining themselves by their wokeness. Goes on to say they're defining themselves by how socially concerned <clears throat> they are. Adam, open one for you. What's your reaction to that? I don't think that's fair. Um, if you want to worry about wokeness, yeah, there's universities you can worry about. There's various individuals, but the central bank is not stomping on alternative voices. It is not saying you can't worry about inflation because we're too worried about unemployment. There's open debate. I just hosted Raphael Bostic, Federal Reserve Bank of Atlanta president at the Peterson Institute earlier this week. He gave a speech that sounded relatively hawkish. He talked about inflation expectations. And at the very end, I asked him about inequality, and he gave the same answer that most members of the FOMC would. It's entirely right for the Federal Reserve to do research and draw attention to the inequities in the society. Monetary policy has to be focused on the aggregate output, aggregate inflation. The latter point's so, a really important point, though, Adam, whether they have the tools or not to address it or not. It sounds like President Bostic doesn't think they do. Do you think there are some on the Fed, though, that believe they do and ultimately want to do something about it? I think those on the Fed who care about these things deeply, and that's most Fed people, but if you think of the various Fed presidents, there's a lot they can do in their districts. There's issues of bank supervision. There's issues of redlining and housing where the Fed played a huge role, first in ignoring it and then drawing attention to it. There's issues of education. There's issues of documenting and putting out there what are the disparities. But no, I don't see anybody on the Fed committee who thinks that you're going to use monetary mm -hmm. policy to solve inequality problems. And the point is, you can worry about inflation and argue about whether or not inflation's getting out of hand without talking about people's motivations and assuming some kind of soft-headed plot. Dr. Posen, you have the uh, joy every day of working with Olivier Blanchard. He wrote about the unlikely but not impossible, the modern inflation dynamics we're in. He made worldwide headlines 11 years ago talking of a 4% inflation. We're there. But this is very different, isn't it? 
Yes and no, Tom. I mean, Olivier and his co-authors made headlines a decade ago calling for a 4% inflation target because the 2% inflation target Bernanke, Michigan, Laubach, and I and others had pushed didn't take into account enough the zero lower bound and us not having effective money. So have we committed the experiment Professor Blanchard talked about? No, because the Federal Reserve and the Congress have not said, hey, inflation's up, let's let's grab that and say, now that we're here, let's raise the target. Myself, Joe Gagnon at the Peterson Institute, we've been out there saying three plus, now is the time, just like you set the So do we need a regime down. change? Do we need a bullet regime change right now to rephrase our generational belief in 2% inflation and say, hey, this is the new normal? I th- I personally think yes, and it's not a regime change, it's a resetting of the target. One of the problems that we didn't foresee when we put in place inflation targets was we assumed, it's in the books that we wrote, we assumed that you would be able to reset the target as economic knowledge and circumstances change it. We've never seen targets get raised for inflation targets. It's like an exchange rate. Once you set it, you're scared to move it. And so, as I've said to you, I think before, Tom, but I'm glad we're talking about this right now, we should be opportunistically reflating. We should be saying, okay, inflation's now above 3%. Let's re-anchor it there. So what do you say to people who argue, maybe not stagflation, maybe slugflation, that basically this will slow growth and that prices will come back down naturally? Why do you say that that is not the case, that we are in a regime change? And what data are you pointing to? Well, just to be clear, I'm saying we're not yet in a regime change. A regime change would be either a fundamental structural shift or the Federal Reserve upping the target. What I do think is happening is we've got so much accumulated weight from these generations of central bankers who were hardly woke and paid too little attention (laughs) to unemployment that you see the 10-year bond, no matter what fiscal and inflation happens, inflation expectations don't go up. And we saw this in Japan and we've seen this in the euro area. It should be a two-way bet that there's some variability in inflation expectations, and that gives you the flexibility to cope with the kind of structure. Adam, I've got to jump in. What you're saying is so, so important. You think that the way they should communicate this is not by making up excuses for it, just by saying this is what we want to see. Is that right? Yeah. We're fortunate enough to now have a bit more headroom from the zero lower bound. We're fortunate enough to have enough inflation space that the economic adjustments to the labor market need to be done. There was a great paper at Jackson Hole this summer talking about how you get better labor market adjustment when you have loose policy, which is what I said back in 98 on Japan. You should be opportunistically reflating and raising the inflation target and consolidating what we got. And then if that means the 10 years up a little bit, the yield curve steepens a little bit, and there's two-way risk on inflation expectations, that is a win for the economy. That is a win for the Fed. Except that the bills are getting bigger, and we have to refinance debt. How much is this a concern? What is the threshold for the 10-year Treasury yield that the U.S. economy can tolerate, given the deficit? It's The 10-year yield doesn't have a single threshold. I'm sorry to be pedantic about this, but this goes back to Blanchard, right, and others. It, what counts is R minus G, the differential between what interest rate you're paying and how much the economy is growing. And if the economy is growing at the rate it's now growing, the interest rate is going to be lower than that. I'm not mm-hmm. going to worry about it. And if the interest rate starts moving up a lot and looks like it's going to stay up, then I worry about it. 
I do not think a lasting multi-year right. shift to 3% is going to ruin the yield curve. So let's let's conflate this. Blanchard and others, Stiglitz has mentioned it often, R minus G is key. That interest rate, as it's related to growth, if the growth's there, everything's okay. Do you believe that what we're misjudging is a technological overlay which is going to give us better productivity, better growth, so we don't have to sweat R minus G? No, I think we're misjudging the extent of the R risk, the extent to which R can jump. I'd love to have G jumping. I'd love to see a product. Do you model, and with all your work at Peterson, do you model G jumping, or do the inflationistas completely underestimate the R dynamics? I'm not quite following, Tom. What we, what I think what we've seen is that over, you look back at the data, if you've got a large economy with a stable government and issuing debt in its own currency, R stays below G most of the time, if you look at US or Western European or Japanese history. You get R jumping usually when there's a political problem. And that's where I worry about the US, not some threshold as was being mentioned. I worry about it because when it stops being credible, credible you're here in Washington, mm -hmm. stops being credible that we can pass debt, that we can pass, excuse me, a budget, that we can raise taxes if necessary, that we can get out of from the stupid debt limit. When that stops being credible, okay. that's when R jumps. So I want you to speak to Secretary Yellen now and everybody else managing this in real time to Lisa's important question before. You don't have a concern about the combined, the sum of our debts right now and the trajectory of them? In response to Lisa and that question, what I always say is it matters a hell of a lot more what you spend it on and how fast you spend it right. over time than the level of How debt. are we doing at that? What? How are we doing it, spending it constructively? The January package was mo was overshooting. That's a place where I agree with Summers and Blanchard. The January package was too much handouts. But what's in the investment packages that are now under consideration mm -hmm. of Congress would be well-spent money. John? That was the argument that Larry was making, though, that pushing that forward would take all the oxygen out of the room to enable us to push this one forward. And ultimately, that's what we're bumping up against right now. And what's amazing about this moment for me and for people that love this material and love this content, they're students of it, is to hear from someone equally as talented, Mohammed Aaron, earlier in the morning, taking the other view on all of this, on inflation. And Adam, the question I often ask people is what's the tell? What do they need to see to say, you know what, maybe I'm wrong about this. What would the tell be for you, Adam? I, for me, the tell would be one of two things. Either that we get no real wage growth over this cycle meaning that we keep having inflation outpace wage growth. That would say, okay, this is all for naught, and so you, you might as well just go with as hard a money as possible. The other tell would be a large jump in real rates. Excuse me, a large jump in long rates. Now, I think what's going on with my friend Mohammed and others is they're already missing the tell that should have told them to reconsider. Look at Japan, look at U.S. Their views do not explain and cannot comprehend why rates stayed so low for the last 15 years. Next time, we need to get you on together. Adam, it's great to catch up, sir, as always. Adam Poston of the Peterson Institute.
a bit off our radar in this week of international economics, but now we dive full into it. And it is good that we can do it with Vitor Gaspar. He is Fiscal Affairs Department Director at the IMF, but that fancy title barely describes the respect for the balance sheet worldwide that world leaders have for the gentleman from Portugal. We're thrilled he could join us in our studios. Welcome to Bloomberg, Vitor. Thank Wonderful you so much, you. Tom, for having me. I, I want to go to the issue at hand, and I know you do not speak for the managing director. That would be inappropriate. But to your fiscal model, you talk about strengthening the uncertainties that are out there uh, within uh, our fiscal process. How does your IMF prove through your department, your PhDs, its data integrity in the coming weeks and months? How do you show, not tell? Data integrity and analysis integrity is absolutely core for us. I'm very proud of my colleagues in the Fiscal Affairs Department, and we have a very robust process to ensure data integrity and the soundness of our analysis. It involves both our department, but also other departments that in the review process vet our data, vet our forecasts, vet our analysis. I think mm -hmm. that we have one of the most robust processes of vetting in the world, and we are always striving to improve. For example, the Independent Evaluation Office reviews how we conduct our business, makes recommendations, those are addressed to mm -hmm. management, they're analyzed in the board, and we make constant progress in the way that we produce data and analysis. The joy of what we do here is we just had Adam Posadon from the Peterson Institute with a spirited conversation of our fears of inflation, and that devolves right over to fiscal affairs in the balance sheet. Can we have a normal discussion of inflation given the excess balance sheets we have from this terrible pandemic? The uncertainty that we're facing has exactly to do with the pandemic, as you put it. The fact that we have dislocations in the balance between supply and demand is creating bottlenecks in specific uh, sectors and price spikes that may last for a while, while the economy rebalances and makes its transition to a new growth path. In a situation like that, Central banks, if inflation and inflation expectations are well anchored mm -hmm. for the medium to long term, should look through this transitory price uh, spike and conduct monetary policy right. with a steady hand. With fiscal affairs, the leaders of these institutions and frankly, world leaders are going to turn to you with the overarching question, can emerging markets do better in crisis now because they have better fiscal affairs. And it does fold back into the governance of the IMF and the World Bank and other institutions, G7, G20, as well. Can you report through your research that emerging markets are more fiscally sound now than they've ever been? Emerging markets, like all country groups, are very heterogeneous inside. We uh, point out to risks of divergences in the recovery and inside the country groups, probably the most heterogeneous of all country groups is the emerging markets. We emphasize very much in the fiscal monitor mm -hmm. that you just quoted the importance of strengthening 
the credibility of public finances. We recommend to all countries that they should maintain or build the credibility of their fiscal frameworks because it pays off. How does it pay off? Right. It pays off in terms of better financing conditions for the Treasury. It pays off in more flexibility to get financing when it's needed. It's mm -hmm. therefore a precious insurance mechanism to have in times of stress like COVID-19. Then there's China. Explain to us from your chair the transparency of China and your observation on the speculation in real estate in China and what it does to their fiscal structure, both government and private. Let me focus on the issue of public finance transparency Please. in China. We have uh, published preliminary estimates on the basis of the global debt database that covers public debt, non-financial corporate debt, and household debt. And one of the challenges that we face in the case of China is looking at what is exactly public sector debt, what is non-financial corporate debt, that is private mm -hmm. debt, given the role that state-owned enterprises, given the role that local Governments, financial vehicles. Are you confident in that transparency right now, or at least the trend to improving transparency? I believe that the Chinese authorities have been improving transparency, and they're very committed to improving it further, and we look forward to work together mm -hmm. with the Chinese authorities to do just that. We are out of time. We have an exceptionally busy day in New York with bank earnings and such. I'm pleased to report to you, sir, the American banks are profitable. I hope that'll make the, make the day better at the IMF. Peter Gaspar with us. He is with the IMF and truly has changed our worldwide debate on the balance sheet and on fiscal affairs. Ken Leon is with us, and Ken, I want to go to the PowerPoint, the Fraser PowerPoint, and I want to make real clear what sticks out to me is the challenge to narrow the return gap. What does that mean in English? Well, it means, first of all, Citigroup shares are, are still trading lowest in terms of price to net tangible book value at a discount. So the market is looking for catalysts. It's not necessarily just uh, normal operations, but what do you do with disparate businesses around the world, particularly in Latin America and Southeast Asia? They did a bit of that two quarters ago, uh, but the market or even Mike Mayo is looking for some bigger catalyst, which is really how do you streamline this bank? Uh, Jane Fraser is a management consultant background, no different than James Gorman. So the wheels are spinning, but I, you know, I think it may have to wait for investor day later in the year. It's not going to happen today on the earnings call. But Citi, again, is a laggard to the other banks, which have a much bigger focus in North America. That's the big difference. Ken, I want to dig a little bit into this 40% increase year over year in equities trading revenue, far beating estimates uh, when it comes in at $1.23 billion versus the $909 million, as John was saying earlier, uh, that analysts were expecting. What do you make of this at a time when banks are trying to toe the line between taking on more risk, appealing to regulators, and at least uh, showing that shareholders that they can drive revenue going forward? Well, there's two parts to that. First of all, we don't like to look back, but it was a weak 
quarter last year, uh, Citi's been actually hiring like crazy last year into this year in equity trading. So I think that speaks to the 40 percent. Um, in terms of regulation, we're fine. Um, you know, it's the risk measure that banks are taking was telegraph, of course, with the June Fed stress test, and they came through in flying colors. Um, so I'm not too concerned about equity trading, but the key here is what moves these stocks is recurring revenue and return of capital. So you don't want to take outsized risk or into the level three assets of derivatives because you have to put more capital to it. Uh, Morgan Stanley understands this. Most of the banks understand this. You know, so it's calibrated. It's not trying to hit it out of the park like we yeah. saw right before the financial crisis. Ken, on behalf of all of us at Team Surveillance, thank you so much for your time commitment here from CFRA this morning. It's really world-class analysis on these important and very large banks. The popular narrative is to do the work, and UBS has done the work for some real caution. They have made a house shift to optimism. Nadia Lovell continues with us, their senior U.S. equity strategist. Nadia, I want to talk about what we see in big tech. And the surprise maybe we see it in other sectors as well. And that is the idea of the issuance of new debt, still with low rates, still with low real rates, that moves right over to use of cash. We had use of new debt to be used in use of cash for shareholder buyback. Do we underestimate that trend? We do underestimate the share of the power of shareholder buybacks. You know, we have seen in a pickup in buybacks announcement this year. Actually, buybacks announcements are on pace to be near record level, as we saw post the last administration, um, the uh, corporate tax reform or relief. And so historically, buybacks has added about 200 basis points to EPS growth. And so that could be a real tailwind as we get into 2022 and corporation return more cash to shareholders. Madam Lagarde spoke today in Washington, the European Central Bank president of the second round of FEC. What is the second round effect for corporate officers right now adapting to the economic cards they've been given? I think that corporations have to continue to manage that expense side. I mean, we saw some of that coming through the banks um, this this morning and yesterday in terms of concerns around a pickup in interest rate, excuse me, in expenses. Um, we also have to watch that from a wage growth standpoint. We're seeing a pickup in wage growth. That is something that we're closely watching because that then just tends to be a lot stickier. And we know a lot of people are sitting out of the job market for a potential increase in wages. One of the most interesting aspects of the optimism that we're feeling this week is that it comes in tandem with pricing in rate hikes sooner rather than later. Right now, the expectation is for at least one rate hike next year and potentially uh, two or more in 2023. How much does that fly in the face of this 5,000 S&P call of yours by the end of next year? We are looking for rate hikes to begin in early 2023. Now, of course, a lot of this is going to be data dependent. You know, obviously, everyone is watching inflation, watching recovery in the job market, and also watching for a potential real acceleration in economic growth. We don't think that uh, uh, the Fed will move to uh, preemptively. We think that the Fed will be more cautious. Obviously, we'll get uh, tapering of asset uh, purchasing program later this year, but we are looking for rate hikes into 2023. Even if rate hike gets pulled forward by 
one one rate hike in 2022, we still don't think that that derails the equity market story. What about two? What's the breaking point here? I think that if you start to see two or three rate hikes in 2022, that will be a, a cause for the market to take pause. Obviously, then people will become concerned that the Fed might be moving too aggressively. As we know, like historically, outside of the most recent recession, most recessions have been caused by any sort of Fed, a Fed mistake. And so that would give us some pause to think that could policy error here. Nadia, will we see combinations, transactions that are simply about the dreaded word synergy? It's been sort of quiet this year, I would suggest. As we come out of this pandemic, is everybody going to get the urge to merge? I think so. You could see a potential pickup in M&A activity. I think that companies have been more on because there is a lot going on in Washington around corporate tax reform. What does that really look like? Hopefully we'll get more details in the next month or so. And I think that will better position companies to look to do M&A in 2022. Companies are flush with cash. Um, valuations have moved up as well as uh, company share prices. And so companies might also use that as a way to acquire uh, other companies. And Nadia, I love catching up with you. Today, no different. It's good to hear from you. UBS's Nadia Lovell there on this equity market. This is the Bloomberg Surveillance Podcast. Thanks for listening. Join us live weekdays from 7 to 10 a.m. Eastern on Bloomberg Radio and on Bloomberg Television each day from 6 to 9 a.m. for insight from the best in economics, finance, investment, and international relations. And subscribe to the Surveillance Podcast on Apple Podcasts, SoundCloud, Bloomberg.com, and of course, on The Terminal. I'm Tom Keen, and this is Bloomberg.